Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, wishing everyone Happy New Year from all of us here at Between the Lines. It is our first episode of 2023, and allow me to introduce our host and wish him a Happy New Year, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Happy New Year, brother. I'm telling you what, I, uh, like most years, never make it to midnight. I'm an 8 o'clock, 8.30 kind of guy. That's where I kind of cut off now that I'm in my my 40s. I spend my New Year's Eve typically counting the number of years that I've been alive on this earth, which takes longer and longer and depresses me more and more. Fabulous 2022. We're very blessed to have a podcast where we can inform and educate and hear the stories from those in law enforcement. I think we're going to continue the trend of trying to educate and helping us as a people get better as we head into this new year. And what we talk about in our uh, our theme music, uh, that it's a chance for uh, people in this profession to talk about cases that have impacted them. And I'm the one that was impacted on this, the, the story we're going to hear today, try to hold it together. The impact that it's had on me is incredibly, incredibly deep. And so I, I don't like saying that I'm looking forward to the episode, but I, I'm looking forward to hearing the story we're going to hear today because it has shaped and molded me as an officer uh, before I retired, and it continues to shape me as a trainer uh, since I heard the story. So why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest for us today? Well, as I said, as we begin this new year, many of us start with resolutions, either in the form of setting a goal for ourselves or changing a bad habit into an improved behavior. Our guest today, through a tragic story she'll share with us, has made it her goal over the past 12 years to change the culture and behavior that ultimately led to the death of her two daughters. She's a safe driving advocate and public speaker, but more importantly, she's a mother who dedicated herself to talking about her daughters and the circumstances of their deaths in an effort to prevent this type of tragedy from happening to other families. We are thankful to have her with us today. We look forward to hearing her story and hopefully we can all grow from it. Miss Kimberly Schlau, thank you so much for being on Between the Lines. Thanks y'all for having me. I appreciate it. Kim, it is always a pleasure to be able to talk with you and see you, but I, I'm, I'm going to be very upfront with you. Uh, I, I was a little bit of uh, trepidation coming into today uh, because this is something that I've never talked to you about directly. And, uh, and it's hard. I I can't, I, you blow me away. I I, I tell you, right. You you blow me away because man, you handle yourself so much better than I could. And and it's something I've always admired about you. And and Brent, I've got to tell you before we get started talking about this, uh, I have heard Kim speak numerous times, uh, but I didn't talk to Kim the first few times uh, that, that, that I heard her speak. I was intimidated. I was intimidated by her, not because of anything that she did, but I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed by what had happened to her because it was part of the profession that I'm a part of. And, and I just couldn't believe 
that this incredibly brave person didn't hold a grudge. And I was scared that she was going to hold it against me. But eventually, thankfully, I was able to talk to her and I consider her a mentor and a leader in this this profession. So I'm excited about it. So now I think I've got all that out of the way. I think I can start to talk about things. So, uh, Kim, it's great seeing you. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you again in person. Uh, we, we see each other at least once a year uh, at Ailita. Yes. So I'm excited about that. Uh, but unfortunately, it's because of tragic situation. Uh, I'm not even really sure where to begin with this. So, so I, I, why, why don't you start and tell me about your daughters? How about we start there? Sure. Sure. Start at the beginning. Um, so in 2007, on November 23rd, 2007, it was 15 years ago, just um, a couple of weeks ago, right before Thanksgiving. Um, November 23rd, 2007, my oldest two daughters, Jessica and Kelly, were on their way home from their dads. They had gone over to their dads that Friday after Thanksgiving to have family pictures taken. And as they were coming home, an Illinois state police officer who was responding to a low priority call at a high rate of speed while on his personal cell phone and on his onboard computer, uh, driving 126 miles an hour to a call that was already handled, he lost control of his car, crossed the median, and drove through my daughter's car, killing her and her sister on that Friday after Thanksgiving. And you have three daughters. I do. Um, yes, they have a um, a sister, Madeline, who was eight at the time that they were killed. And she won't remember, but I got to meet her one time. She's at least as strong as her mom is. And, and that's saying something. And um, <clears throat> but how how old were, were, were Jessica and Kelly at this time? Jessica was 18. Uh, she had just graduated from high school. She was attending a local college and Kelly was 13. She was in eighth grade. Literally, uh, when people talk about someone being in the prime of their life, the best time of their life, that that's what these young ladies were entering. I, I don't know how you handle yourself at the holidays. I mean, right, I don't, Thanksgiving, it, it just seems like such a, um, a weird word to use. Um. Well, the day before they were killed, uh, we had Thanksgiving dinner together. Uh, my dad had come up for that. He lived a few hours away from us. So he came up and had um, Thanksgiving. Well, we did lunch, late lunch. And then after uh, we were done with that, of course, we watched the Dallas Cowboys play football. They probably lost. I don't remember. <laughs> Thank you for not mentioning the Lions, by the way. <laughs> Hey, I'm a Cowboys fan, so uh, it's all right. And then, um, but after uh, that, we went to the movies and then we went home and um, Jess and Kelly were leaving the next morning to go to their dad's. Um, I love Thanksgiving. I still host Thanksgiving. It is um, one of my favorite holidays because it's food, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you don't have to worry about a lot of decorating and a lot of presents and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's just sitting around the table. And one of our traditions was always to sit around, to go around the table and say what we were thankful for. And I do remember that, uh, Jessica said she was thankful for her sisters and, um, for the massive amount of mashed potatoes probably <laughs> that I had made for her. 
And um, Kelly said she was thankful for her family. And uh, Madeline said, oh, well, I'm thankful for my sisters too. And of course, you know, Jessica and Kelly gave Madeline a little grief because they said, oh, you're just copying off of us. But um, it was it was fun. We were laughing. I mean, they were three girls that generally loved one another, but my God, could they fight? <laughs> so it was a nice, you know, great. I remember everybody was getting along and we just had a lot of fun that day. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, it is truly one of my favorite, um, my favorite memories. And we didn't know it was our last time together. And I'm glad that it was good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the holidays can be hard. Um, Christmas is, you know, they loved Christmas. Kelly's birthday is new year's day. Um, so we kind of get, you know, <laughs> we get smacked around around the holidays, but we get through it. And a lot of what helps us get through it is giving back to our community. We had a lot of community support after they were killed. And so, um, you know, we do blood drives, food drives. Um, we, you know, we do give back to the community and that always helping someone else kind of gets us out of our own heads and, um, and helps us to heal. How did you find out what had happened with them? Because I, I think one of the things that's important from the law enforcement professional side is that too often we lose sight of the impact that what we do and what we say has impact on the people that we are interacting with. So how did you, how did you come about learning about what happened to them? They were, I anticipated that they would be home around noon on that Friday. Jessica had to work um, at three o'clock that afternoon. So um, they, I thought that they would be home around noon. So I was putting Christmas decorations up outside. I came back in and noticed that it was getting close to one o'clock and I didn't start to worry yet. I thought maybe they just stop for lunch or shopping. They'll be home pretty soon. And then as it got closer to three o'clock, I thought to myself, all right, maybe she's just running late. Um, she'll go straight to work. She'll call me and I can go pick up Kelly from her work. She only worked about five, 10 minutes from where we lived. Uh, so after three o'clock, a little after three o'clock when my phone rang, I thought it was her, but it was her work to say that she wasn't there and that she hadn't called in yet. So I did start to worry then she was very responsible. It wasn't like her to just, you know, not show up for work or at least not tell someone something. So I tried calling her cell phone. Um, it rang a few times and went to voicemail and I left her a couple of voicemails and then close to four o'clock, I called their dad. He said they'd left several hours ago, said they were going straight home. I said, I can't get a hold of Jessica. Um, she hasn't called into work. She didn't go to work. She's not answering her phone. And around five o'clock, I finally decided I was just going to go look for them. I was nervous. I was mad. I was angry. And I needed to do something other than just sit in my house and wait. So I told Madeline to go get her coat. We were going to go for a drive. I didn't want to scare her, but I think she knew something was wrong at that time. And as I was going in back into my living room to get my coat and my purse, I saw headlights through my front window. They turned, came down my driveway. I heard two car doors slam. And I thought to myself, oh, good, they're home. 
I'm really going to be mad at her for scaring me like this. And when I opened my front door, I didn't see Jessica's car. I didn't see Jessica and Kelly, but I saw an Illinois State Police car and two uniformed Illinois State Police uh, officers coming onto my porch. And I remember watching them walk up my sidewalk onto my porch. And I just thought to myself, if I don't open the door, then they're, it's not real. I, um, I had a feeling that something had, obviously something had happened. I kind of had a feeling that it was bad. Um, but until they actually came in and told me that they had been killed, I kind of had a little hope that maybe it was a crash, but they had been taken to a hospital. But when they told me um, what happened, uh, this, um, they all they knew was that an officer was responding to a crash, lost control. They didn't have all the information that we later had in the investigation. So that just that little bit of information they had made it sound like this is something that unfortunately happens in this line of work. But as the investigation revealed his speed and his cell phone use and his MDT use and other factors, uh, we knew that this crash was completely preventable. I remember uh, the first time I heard the presentation on this crash and I, I can't wrap my head around something that was so preventable and so incredibly senseless, how that could happen. I, I mean, responding on a non-emergency call in many agencies, traveling at that speed, even to an emergency call is going to get you in a jam. I just don't get it. And so I don't know how long this information is taking to get to you. But in addition to the grief, you have to be getting incredibly angry. And I don't know how you handled that anger. Um, so the crash happened on November 23rd. The next day, we found out through the media that it was his seventh, eighth crash in a six-year career as a trooper. And then in January, the coroner's inquest was held. And at that time, we just uh, learned the speed was 126 miles an hour at the time of impact. A crash reconstruction officer told me later that his speed was probably close to 135, if not more. But when he left the roadway, he hit a culvert pipe that was sticking out. So his car actually went airborne and his black box showed at the time of impact 126. So by the time he left the roadway and hit Jessica's car, his speed had decreased. Um, but it's still, it was twice the posted speed limit. He was on our interstate and it, the posted speed limit was 60 miles an hour there. Um, so it was more than twice the posted speed limit. So, yeah. And then, you know, as the more and more and more information came out, then we started thinking, okay, this is, this shouldn't have happened. And, um, and we wanted to make sure that we did something to keep it from happening again. And it, when you were describing uh, the crash a minute ago, uh, you described the impact as him driving through their car, because that's an actual representation of what happened at the time of impact, isn't it? Yes, he had left the roadway and um, 
the crash reconstruction officer, he didn't specifically work this crash. He's seen the photos. He knows all the, um, the facts told me that he thinks the patrol car hit right at the corner of Jessica's windshield, right where the driver's door and windshield intersect. And he went kind of diagonal through her car. There are photos um, showing the entire front end metal of Jess's car peeled all the way back to the back. And those are not like post jaws of life photos. That is how he just decimated their car. Um, when he hit them, the number of accidents that he had been involved in before, it should have been an indicator for an agency, shouldn't it? It should have the crash he had before he killed them happened. I think two or three years prior, he rear-ended a couple that was sitting at a stop sign because he was on his onboard computer and didn't see them in time and rear-ended them at the stop sign. And, And this time, in addition to the onboard computer, He's also messing around with his cell phone. Right. He was on his phone with his uh, girlfriend talking about some Christmas present she had bought for their daughter at the after Thanksgiving sales. He talked to her, according to his cell phone records, he talked to her for over four minutes while he was responding and also while he was on his onboard computer. His call terminated 32 seconds prior to the first 911 call that came in for the crash. So he was either on his phone at the time of impact or just prior. At 126 miles an hour, at least. At least, yes. We like to think that that is an anomaly. You know, this was, this truly was a, a, a an outlier. But I think that you have found through the course of your work that it's not, while it's not prevalent, it's not as rare as perhaps we would like it to be. Exactly. Um, There have been, uh, I know for one, a couple of crashes that have happened and the officer survived. He was going 126. And then there was another one where he was going probably 130. um, And it was a single vehicle crash. He wrapped his car around a tree. But uh, because he was buckled in and wearing his body armor, he was okay. Um, And that's how that trooper survived the crash was because he did have on his seatbelt and his body armor, which kept the steering column from crushing his chest. And and now you've got the coroner's inquest and more in this information is being revealed. Uh, What, what ultimately happened to him? We, um, he was charged with, so all of that went to the grand jury and the grand jury charged him with four felonies, two counts of reckless homicide for Jessica and Kelly's deaths, two counts of aggravated reckless driving. There was another couple injured in the crash. When he hit Jessica's car, he pushed her car into the path of a minivan and the um, husband and wife in the front seats of the minivan suffered injuries. The husband suffered a broken hand. His wife, who was pregnant, suffered a broken leg. Her unborn baby was okay. And then they had three small children who were buckled up in the back and they were okay as well. So ultimately he was charged with the four felonies and just prior to the criminal trial date and just prior to our trial date for our civil suit that we filed against the state, the prosecuting attorney said that the defense attorney had proposed a plea deal that in exchange for 30 months of probation and a two year suspension of his driver's license, he would plead guilty to those four felonies. And we said no, 
Um, not because we felt him possibly going to jail, us going through a trial. That's not going to bring back Jessica and Kelly. But we knew the facts that he was driving more than twice the posted speed limit to a call already handled. Dispatch had told him there was no emergency. His, he was on his phone. He was on his computer. He'd had all those prior crashes. We knew all that stuff. But the prosecutor said, you have to remember, it only takes one juror to believe that what he was doing here um, was part of his job. He did claim, which I forgot to mention, he claimed that a white car drifted into his lane that caused him to swerve and lose control. But of the 80 some odd witnesses that were interviewed after the crash, no one mentioned a white car anywhere near him. So the prosecutor reminded us that the jury could believe this is what happens in law enforcement or they could believe that white car might exist and he might be found not guilty and he might go back to being a police officer. And I was not going to allow him to go back and be a part of this profession because I felt he was a disrespect to the men and women who do this job the right way. And I didn't want him to be able to go back out there and be part of law enforcement and drive his car the way he'd been driving, possibly hurting someone else or himself. So when we allowed him to take that plea deal, he was a convicted felon and he could never again be a police officer. And it was a very hard decision for their dad and I to make. We had a very heated conversation <laughs> about it. Uh, but ultimately, that's why we allowed him to take that plea deal is we were guaranteed he would never again be able to be a police officer. For, for our listeners, were you a law enforcement family at, the, at this point? No. Um, the <laughs> a, a long time ago, like, um, oh, I don't know, probably 40 years ago, I had an uncle on my mom's side that was a um, police officer. Um, I think it was with Missouri Highway Patrol, actually. Uh, but he had, you know, only been that for a couple of years. So that really was the only law enforcement we'd ever had. And I, we weren't, I wasn't close to that uncle. So um, honestly, up until that point, my, you know, exposure to law enforcement was on the rare occasion I got stopped was handing my driver's license <laughs> out the window. Uh, but no, we, we didn't have any um, immediate family or even really any friends um, who were law enforcement. This is the part that amazes me is without that law enforcement connection and, and after the, the, these court proceedings at some point you, you make the decision that you know what this is a story uh, that needs to be shared with law enforcement personnel so this doesn't happen again how, how did that come about in 2010 um is that right <laughs> Time has no meaning anymore, so I have to count back. Yeah, yeah. I saw it on your website in 2010. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, 2010. Um, yeah, in 2010, I was asked, um, actually, I'm looking right at the plaque that they gave me, and it says June 17th, 2010. So um, I was asked by the chief of the St. Louis County uh, Police to come over and talk to the recruits at the academy and share my story. He said that the instructors had used Jessica and Kelly's story, but he said, I think you coming in as the mom um, and having that, uh, that perspective 
is going to make a bigger impact on them than just um, you know the instructor standing up there and giving the the details of what happened. I was a paralegal at the time. I had never really done public speaking. So I said, okay, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, just come in, tell us about that day. Tell us how you were notified and talk about, you know, how you felt. A lot of the information um, that we later had didn't, we didn't have at that time. So it was a very short presentation. It was about 10 minutes. Some of the recruits did talk to me afterward and as I was driving home, I thought to myself, maybe if I get a chance to do this again, maybe I will talk about this or I'll add this back in there. And a couple of days later, the chief called me and said, the recruits uh, were just blown away by your presentation. They'd like you to come to graduation next week. And oh, by the way, we have another academy starting in a few months. Will you come in and talk to that academy? So that's where that started. And it just kind of steamrolled from there. And you speak regularly. And I mean, you're a pretty high in demand speaker. And it's because the the story is so powerful. And I when when I heard when I heard you speak the first time, uh, the, 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 there were the, these two competing factors going on. The, the, there's you up there telling this story, and there is a silence that, that and I'm talking absolute silence, that there's no movement whatsoever. And, and, and I speak a lot. I, I train a lot, and I never get that type of response. There's always people moving. But I am telling you, I have never seen – a group of people so fixated and so focused when they're listening to your story. And that has to be incredibly powerful for you as the speaker to experience that. It, it is. And again, I, I didn't really have any public speaking experience. I had never, you know, been in that kind of, of job. I, you know, I have been to conferences and, and, uh, and as you said, you know, there's speaker up there and people are, you know, cell phones really weren't that prevalent back then, but, you know, people are making notes or they're kind of shifting around or, you know, they're talking to their neighbor or whatever. And, um, and I, I think the first time, the first time I was really able to see that, um, was when Madeline actually went out and spoke during part of mine and then I was able to kind of step back and see how the audience reacted to her. And I told my friend that was, um, had, you know, that I was working with, I was like, Oh, this is what you're talking about. And he said, yeah. Uh, and it's even more powerful that a 13 year old is now standing on a stage in front of 500 police officers telling her side of the story. Uh, so that was, uh, that, yeah. I was able to see that then. Um, but I, I do love what I do. I just hate why I have to do it. Uh, And it's one of those things where it, and I mean this sincerely, the impact that it had on me individually as a professional was profound. The impact that it's had on me as a trainer has has been profound. And, And it's one of those, those, one of those stories that it doesn't matter how many times I hear it, it just rips my heart out. 
one of the things that you did, you, you also have a foundation, don't you? And so can you tell us about that? What, what that's for? Sure. Um, so like I said, we had a lot of community feedback. We had a lot of community support and a couple of years after, um, well, the following year, um, in July of 2008, I hosted a fundraiser, um, because I wanted to give back to the community and I thought, you know, we'll, we'll have this, um, in the Midwest, they call them chicken and beer dances. <laughs> it's um, it's fried chicken and draft beer. And you go to like, you know, the American Legion or you go to the uh, Knights of Columbus. Ours was at the Knights of Columbus Hall. And we just kind of invited, um, you know, put it out there and, and charged people, a, you know, a basic cover to come in. And we had fried chicken and masticcioli. And I remember telling my dad this is kind of like the wedding reception I'm never going to be able to give them. Um, and that's, that's what it was. I mean, it was, it was fun. We had, um, Oh gosh, uh, probably about 500 people, um, come in. I think I'd bargained on about 300. So we had about 500. And, um, after that, uh, I started the, the foundation. We have a scholarship, in Jessica's name at the college, um, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, uh, that she was attending. And it goes to a high school student that graduates from the high school that she graduated. And then for a little while, we had Kelly's um, at the high school as well. And then when Maddie turned 18, I put her on the board of my foundation. And I said, you get to choose what you want to do with Kelly's half of the money. Um, and so she thought about it and we ended up, Kelly loved animals, wanted to be a vet when she grew up. So Maddie said, let's do something for police canines. And we had an opportunity to, um, donate some of that money. The, uh, national canine trials were held in Southern Illinois that year. So we were able to sponsor, I think, you know, we just get, we gave them a, you know, a, a check and they were able to buy like water and snacks and, and things, you know, for the dogs. Um, and so we were able to do that. We have, um, used her money, Kelly's money for, um, scholarships to academies for officers, you know, to kind of help defray the cost of, of them attending the academy and for equipment and things like that. Uh, so we do try to give back, um, to the community. We've had some fun fundraisers. We've done an adult prom. We've done trivia nights. And this last one that we did was a uh, bourbon. We did a bourbon tasting. Um, that one, I after that one, I realized I probably should have uh, some sober people watching out for the people <laughs> who maybe tasted. <laughs> I won't mention names, but a good friend of mine wound up in the laundry room of the hotel. <laughs> And you know, and you know who that is, because <laughs> we both have worked with <coughs> that person. Uh, but I, w I won't uh, embarrass them uh, on the air like this. But uh, I know who they are. But it's a lot of fun. And um, I started doing the fundraiser when Ilita came to St. Louis. I started doing the fundraiser around Ilita because a lot of the officers and people that I had met through my work were like, "We really want to try to come to this fundraiser," but 
you know, it's kind of hard for us to travel from, you know, all over the U.S. So having it at Ailita gave us a new audience and gave us um, a lot more people we could reach. And so just a, a quick shout out to that. Uh, number one, uh, if you're in law enforcement, if you're a trainer, you need to go to Ailita. It's, it's a fantastic week. Uh, but, but it always starts off. It, the, the conference kicks off on Monday morning and, and the fundraisers on Sunday. And, and yes. it, it is it is worth the extra day to be a part of that fundraiser. And, and I've got to I'm going to confess something here that I haven't talked to a lot of people about a few years ago at the fundraiser. Uh, there was another person that told the story from their perspective. And it was their dad. And poor planning on my part when he goes to tell a story uh, I, I'm pretty close to him physically and he starts telling the story and <clears throat> he's talking about the girls but then he starts talking about you and, 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 he, and he starts talking about you know I'd always heard about this work that, that, that Kim was doing and I never had a full appreciation of what she did until I came tonight. I, I think that was the first time he really recognized how you have turned this incredibly tragic event into something good. Not that it's good that it happened, but there has been good that has come from this tragic event because you worked tirelessly at getting this message out. And I'm already, I've already my eyes are already watering because I was close to being a blubbering idiot that night just to be honest with you uh, but but it, it it's humbling to me watching the work that you do so so if somebody wanted to be a part of that foundation if they wanted to contribute where could they go to, if they can't make the fundraiser where could they go to get some information can they get a hold of you or uh, they can go to the website. It's Kimberly Um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, or they can, you know, uh, email me, which is Kimberly at gmail.com. Um, and, and reach out. So we will, um, we'll have, we will have the fundraiser and they can reach out, um, and, and, and find me. You, it, as one of my friends said, I am anything but anonymous. So. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it right there. <laughs> Easy to get a hold of. And so we're, we're going to put all the contact information uh, on, on the episode page to make sure that people have that information so they can, they can be a part of that. But as we're starting a new year off, and and I love the, the the message you deliver. What what's one thing that you would tell those that are in the, the first responder field? What message would you give them that have come out of this incredible tragedy? Um, the first thing I would say is I understand that you have a job to do, and that sometimes that job does require you to drive quickly. I understand that. However understanding that if you're going to be driving that fast, then make that your main concentration. Don't be distracted by your phone. Don't be distracted by your computer. I know that law enforcement is asked to do myriad tasks while they're behind the wheel. And if they can just slow down when they don't need to be driving that fast. But if you do have to drive that fast, make that the main thing that you're doing and don't be distracted by other things. Also wearing your seatbelt, wearing your body armor, 
uh, doing those things that are available to you to keep you safe and keep you going home. That's one of the main things that I, I concentrate on as well. Um, and um, just just be I, law enforcement has a difficult job to do. It's inherently dangerous. I don't understand when I hear about officers who say, oh, I don't wear my seatbelt or I wear it off duty. I don't wear it on duty. I just um, I really just want to go up and shake them <laughs> and hug them and say, please don't do that. Please put your seatbelt on because your family wants you to go home. Um, it, it's just a, that's what I want is is the, this, the officers to be safe and go home to their families. My girls didn't get a chance, but maybe changing one of that officer's um, behaviors might have uh, saved their lives. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but I like to hope that we don't have this happen again. Well, I, I can tell you that, again, I don't have any empirical evidence, but I, I have to believe that with the number of lives that you touch, that there has been people, there have been more than one people that, that have gone home because of the work that you do. And, and that's incredibly sound advice, folks, you know, slow down, wear your seatbelt, wear your body armor. And, and I would just add, wherever you are, be there, intentionally be there, paying attention to what's going on, because the preventable line of duty deaths that we see each and every year as tragic as all line of duty deaths are, those ones right there, they're just incredibly senseless because they could be prevented. And, and so, so Kim, on behalf uh, of us here uh, at Between the Lines, I want to wish you a, a happy new year. And, and I want to thank you for the work that you have done and that you continue to do because you are making a difference and that's a life that matters. That's a life worth living. So I appreciate that personally and professionally. Thank you very much. I do appreciate the opportunity to uh, share my story and share my daughters uh, with a new audience. Brent, I, I told you this one was going to be a tough one for me. And uh, I, I, I normally uh, have a mute button and it's not accessible to me right now. And so um, I, I struggled somebody. It's, uh, it's hard to listen to because you insert yourself into Kim's position. And uh, as, as hard as it is to listen, it's sobering reminder of we all need to be better and get better. And we don't like to do these episodes without providing some information for folks to get better. Uh, Kim obviously gave some information on officers, officers can get better, but it's not just law enforcement, it's all of us. We can be better. And so we're gonna put in the show notes some ways that folks can uh, work to be better, to not be distracted when they are driving, because I think we could all learn from that. And we'll put some statistics up and we'll also put that on social media, because I think we all need to be reminded of how fragile life is and um, how good that we have it and how blessed we truly are. And Kim, I appreciate all the work that you're doing and the impact you've made in your community and um, the impact that you've made on us today. We truly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.